Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we come this morning and we're so thankful to reflect upon the great salvation that you have given to us in Jesus Christ and what that means for our lives. And we, we read this morning that blessed are those who hear your word and, and obey it. And Lord, I, that's, that's our prayer this morning as a congregation, that we could be people that that hear the word of God this morning. But Lord, you know that there are things on our minds, um, problems maybe we're working through, things that we have going on later today, so many things that could distract us. But I pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear, attention to give to your word this morning. We pray uh, more than just for uh, a human exercise. We pray for the work of your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to work in our hearts. May, may our hearts be that fertile soil to receive your word. And I pray that you would help me as a minister of the gospel to speak clearly your word. Lord, I pray that in all these things that you would draw our hearts ever closer to you, to love you more deeply. God, to forsake the sin that so often entangles us. And instead, Lord to live in a way that would glorify you. We thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. You know, I don't know if you've uh, noticed this or not. This is something that really just sort of struck me this week. But many of the songs that we sing in the church use the word adjective, use the adjective amazing to describe the grace of God. Not just when we sing Amazing Grace, obviously that does, but even some of the other songs that we sing about grace, it oftentimes uses that word amazing. And yet the problem of so many of our Christian lives, I think, is that we have ceased to feel that grace is amazing. I'm not saying we don't appreciate grace, that we're not thankful for the grace of God, but do we see it as amazing? I think oftentimes we've come to think of grace as natural or as common. You know, kids, it's sort of like when I was uh, in elementary school, when I was uh, the age of a lot of you kids, I would sometimes get to go with our church to a nearby state to an amusement park. That's where they had roller coasters and shows and all these activities. And one of the things that I soon discovered is is that they had this ice cream, which is my favorite food, uh, called uh, mint chocolate chip. And I had never seen that before. Now, what you have to understand about Pastor Rick is this. I'm a chocolate guy through and through. As a matter of fact, I have a mug that says, give me chocolate or give me death. And I keep that on my desk, okay? So that's how much I love chocolate. But when I went to Cedar Point, which is this amusement park, and saw this mint chocolate chip ice cream, I would forego eating chocolate ice cream so I could try this new ice cream. It was really good. Uh, well, so I sort of looked forward to my trips to Cedar Point. But one day when I was a little bit older, I went into the grocery store and what did I see? Mint chocolate chip ice cream in my own hometown. I didn't have to go to the next state over to get this ice cream. And so uh, I, I could enjoy it uh, all the time. Now, is chocolate still my favorite? Yes. But whenever the mint chocolate chip is on sale, my wife will buy that. 
And as much as I like the mint chocolate chip, it's not quite as, as special to me as it once was. Because, you know, now I can have it, you know, just about whenever I want it. And so, uh, because it's now, now not just in one place. And maybe there's something in your life that's like that. That's something that was really special to you, but now you've been able to experience it so much, it's more common. And sometimes I wonder if grace for the Christian is almost like mint chocolate chip was for me. I like it. It's good. But it's natural. It's common. It's become ordinary. And I wonder if for some Christians maybe even that we have become so cold and indifferent to Jesus that we've begun to think, not consciously, but maybe subconsciously, that we really deserve this grace that God has shown to us. After all, you know, we've progressed quite a ways in our Christian living, right? And we don't act the way we did. We don't speak the way that we once did. And so maybe we deserve that. Or maybe for some of us, and maybe even for some of you kids who have grown up in the church and you've heard the gospel over and over and over and over, maybe you really don't think that you're all that bad. And so God's gift of sending a son to die for us doesn't seem to be so spectacular or even necessary. But it's important for us, and it's part of the reason why Paul wrote the, the letter to the Ephesians, that we should have a new sense of the wonder and the magnitude of God's grace. And, and as he extols God's grace in, in this opening chapter, Paul gives us this extraordinary sentence. You remember that in verses 3 through 14? That's just one sentence. I, I wonder if Paul didn't just like start and he just started going and he just, he just got caught up in just the theology of what he was laying out, and he couldn't help but just to continue on and to worship God in this. It's an extraordinary, uh, the grace of God. And Paul describes it in verse 6 as the praise of his glorious grace. That it's this glorious grace that God has shown. And the way that God shows his glory supremely is in the grace that he shows to his people through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see in verses 3 through 6 that we talked about last week that God chose in Christ before the creation of the world to emphasize that we are his people exclusively because of his grace. Before we had done anything to qualify us for his favor, before we even existed, before the world was created, God chose us in his grace that in Christ we might receive every spiritual blessing. Now just stop and think about that. Stop and think about that. And think about the way you live and the things you do to seek approval and, 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 uh, and to get sometimes even thinking that you need to do things to win God's favor. And yet before you did anything, God had set his grace upon you. You see, humanity's tendency is to say to God that there must be something in me that caused you to choose me. And yet God says, there is nothing in you in and of yourselves that drew me to you. Uh, but he shows his grace. You know, I wonder if one might be so bold as to say that if I don't find grace amazing, then I've not really understood the Christian faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, if I don't 
find grace amazing, then there is something seriously wrong with my Christian life. If it has not dawned on me that all that I am and all that I have received as a Christian believer comes to me exclusively because of the grace of God and not because of anything I am in and of myself, then I have not yet really understood the mystery of the gospel in such a way as that the gospel will really give me that assurance of faith. And we need to understand how radical Paul's understanding of grace is. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the ways that, I've, that I learned to understand the meaning of grace was to use the acrostic grace. Have you ever used this? Uh, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, expense uh, G-R-A-C-E. Well, now that's the way that God's grace does come to us, okay? But we need to be very clear as Christians that God is not gracious to us simply because Christ died for us. In other words, it's not that, you know, uh, that God didn't really want much to do with us, but Jesus Christ died on the cross and he says, you know, Father, I know you don't really want to be gracious to them, but for my sake, I want you to do that. That's not how it happened. But that God set his grace upon us, and so therefore he came up with this plan to elect and to predestine us to be adopted as his sons. And then he said to his son, he said, Son, I want you to go, and I want you to redeem these people to make them my own. And... That's why Paul speaks of the grace of the Father and the grace of the Son and the grace of the Holy Spirit. The whole, and I want you to hear this, the whole of God's being is in absolute agreement as to the grace for sinners like ourselves. Paul wants us to see that the heart of the Heavenly Father and how such love compelled the Father to send the Son to actually redeem those that the Father had chosen. The Father has this wonderful plan to pour out. And we see that. Look at verses 8 through 10. We're going to sort of start at the end and work our way backwards. But he talks about this wonderful plan, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now, that wisdom and insight could mean human wisdom and insight. But I think more appropriately in the context, he's talking about the wisdom and insight that God has. Making known to us the mystery of his will. Now, the mystery is not like a murder mystery like we're used to, where it's like a mystery that you're trying to figure out what's going on. You know, this is a mystery in which we knew God's plan. It just had not been totally, all the details had not been uh, revealed to us completely yet. And so you think back uh, to Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, when Adam and Eve were standing there, and in the midst of God proclaiming his judgment upon Adam and Eve, he also gives the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ in Genesis 3.15. And he says to Satan, he, that is the Messiah, will come and he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. In other words, you're going to strike a blow to him, but he's going to crush your head. And, and so even then, we knew that God had a plan. We didn't understand that God's plan had actually gone way back farther than the beginning of time. We didn't realize that, you know, uh, in Genesis 3. But God reveals that he had a plan, but he didn't reveal all the details. But now, 
In Jesus Christ, God has revealed that mystery. He's told us all the, the details of that plan. Um, so he lavished on us in all wisdom, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Jesus Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, he's going to reestablish that relationship that Adam and Eve had with God uh, through Christ. Once again, we can walk with God in the cool of the day and we can worship with him. We read in Romans 8, 21, how even the creation yearns for the day of redemption because even the creation has been affected and yet all that's going to be brought back together in heaven and earth as God's plan is revealed. And of course, this isn't something that the Father is making the Son do. We read in John 4.34 that the Son willingly comes to do the will of the Father. As a matter of fact, he says, it's my bread. It's my nourishment to do the will of my Father. And so Jesus comes to redeem his people. Now, what does it mean to redeem? That's a word we use all the time. Kids, if I ask you for a definition of redemption, could you tell me? It could be, that's a sort of a big word, and that can be a, a tough one. Well, let me sort of explain to you what it is, because it's a, an important word in the Bible, especially as you look at the Old Testament. You see it a lot in the Old Testament economy. And redemption really means this, to pay a price for somebody who's in bondage. To pay the price for somebody who's in bondage. Now, in Paul's day, as we talked about last week, uh, in Rome... Uh, slavery was uh, quite a big deal, as a big enterprise. And so people would be sold as slaves. Now, I don't know if you've ever, if you've lived in the country or not, and you've ever gone to, to buy animals. Maybe your dad or your uncle or your grandfather went to buy some cows or pigs or sheep or something like that. And they would go to an auction and they would auction off the animals and they could buy them. That's sort of like what they did with people. Now, I'm guessing most of you kids are city kids, though, so you probably didn't haven't gone to an auction. But let's just assume that maybe you've ever gone to the animal shelter and you've seen a dog or a cat that you wanted. And so your parents would go and they would pay the price for that animal and then you would take that animal home. It's sort of like that, only they would do that with people. And the idea here is, is of seeing someone as a slave and then paying the price for that person so that you might set them free. So that they would no longer be a slave. And so redemption speaks of God saving us from a situation that we couldn't get ourselves out of. Because that's the situation that a slave is in. And it reminds us of how God redeemed his people. He, he took his people Israel in the Old Testament and it says that he brought them out of Egypt. He, he rescued them. They were crying out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses to Israel because why? He says, I've heard the cries of my people. You know, there was nothing that they could do about the situation that they were in. All they could do was cry out to God. And God heard their prayers and he answered them. And so Paul takes this concept and applies it to our problem with sin. Um, so the great captivity that enslaves us as human beings is not just an earthly power, but it is sin. It's one that we cannot um, solve ourselves. And so he says in verse 7, in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, that is of our sins that we commit against the Lord. 
Now, we often think of our sin, I think, as a small thing. You know, indulgences that do us little harm, especially if nobody seems to be hurt or if we're not able to get away with it. But Jesus says that the result of sin is slavery, that it is putting us in bondage. In John 8.34, Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Sin places us in bondage and, and in a crushing affliction from which we can't escape. And as slaves to sin, we can't live free lives because of our sinful nature's corrupting influences on our choices and our desires. Therefore, we can't meaningfully speak of having a free will. Yes, we make choices, but our will is in bondage to sin, which is why we keep on sinning. And, and the sad tragedy is, is that all of humanity, every human being, is following, as Paul says later on in chapter 2, the prince of the power of the air. And so therefore we are by nature children of God's wrath in Ephesians 2, verses 2 through 3. So sin is not an occasional troublesome intruder. It's an enslaving power in our lives. And, and we are powerless in and of ourselves to do anything from it. So having been born in sin, as we see in, in Psalm 51.5, as David talks about that, uh, being conquered by sin, living in bondage to sin, having accrued a great debt because of our sin and guilt to God, uh, there is nothing that we can do uh, to be set free from that. And as if that's not bad enough, then in Romans 6.23, we read that the wages... Or the, the payment for our sin is what? It's death. Not just physical death, but, but spiritual death. But the good news is that we read here that, that Paul says that Christ has redeemed us. He's bought us off the slave block. Uh, he has set us free. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. We are no longer on the auction block, but the slave market's over. And we're standing with our new owner, our loving God, who has paid the price to set us free. Now, what did Christ have to pay for that? Of course, we read in verse 7 that he had to pay a hefty price tag. It says here that he redeemed us through his blood. The cost to redeem us for Christ is to die in our place, uh, to, to be our, our substitute. He took his life and he gave his life for us. And so Christ took our place and he died for our sins. But it's not just his sins for ours, but also we read that God's wrath was poured out on his son to take the punishment for us. Once again, uh, the Jews would have understood this because they were used to the celebration of uh, the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur as it's sometimes referred to, that, that National Day of Atonement. And what the priest would do is he would take two lambs, one he would take, or, or goats, and he, he would take uh, one and he would sacrifice it and he would sprinkle that blood on the altar but with the other one, he would take and he would place his hand on the head of that goat. And, and when he did that, he was, in essence, uh, transferring the sins of the people to that goat as he would confess their, the sins of the people. And then that goat would be sent out into the wilderness where it couldn't find its way back. 
it symbolically was taking the, the sins of the people and sending it away never to be seen again. And that's exactly the word that's used for forgiveness here. That your sins and mine were, um, they were sent away never to return. Our sins then, having been sent away, uh, would never be held against us. And all this is happening in the mind of God before the world began. Your sins and mine were already in God's mind, totally forgiven before the world was ever created. Think about that. And yet, sometimes as Christians, we struggle with being so depressed and discouraged because we think that God is counting our sins against us. We feel like we can't live up or we can't measure up to the expectations uh, that we sometimes find uh, in the Christian community and therefore we feel like we're worthy. Other Christians are so overwhelmed with guilt because of their besetting sin that they don't look to Jesus Christ for deliverance anymore. Instead, uh, they sort of regress from the understanding of being redeemed by Jesus and instead they try in their own efforts and their own ability to try to overcome their sin. And they just, it's like, okay, God, I'll do better next time. Lord, I won't give in to that sin. I'll be careful with the words that I speak. I'll no longer get angry with my family. God, I promise I won't do this. And in doing that again and again, we're just seeking to redeem ourselves by our own efforts. And yet God wants us to know that he has redeemed us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, as long as we keep our eyes upon our sin, Satan knows that we not only will not walk in righteousness, but we will not look to God to be our deliverer anymore. That we will look to ourselves. But Jesus said that he has removed his, our sins from us. How far? In Psalm 103, 12, you know this well, as far as the east is from the west. Now, kids, how many miles is that? It's infinity. It's infinity. The east and the west never meet. That's how far our sins are from us. And Micah says in Micah 7, verse 18, he says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, that's sin, and passing our transgressions, that's sin, for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And all this is in the mind of God before the creation of the world. And so here we are forgiven. Our sins are sent away. And you say, but I don't deserve this. And of course we don't. But God redeems his people nonetheless. Christ's blood does more than just take away our sins though. We also see that it actually makes us clean. In Romans chapter 6 verse 8 it says, And having set us free from sin, past tense, we have become slaves of righteousness. We become slaves of righteousness. In other words, God has given us a new heart to love him and to obey him. And so we can come to him this morning and we can rejoice and give thanksgiving to him. Brothers and sisters, if being free 
you have given yourselves over to sin once again, know that you cannot set yourself free. You must look to your own Redeemer, your only Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And let this be a motivation for us to praise God and to rejoice in Him. And then we see that in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. I, I love uh, the illustration that uh, Kent Hughes gives. He, he sort of makes a distinction between the idea of God redeeming us out of His riches as opposed to the idea of God redeeming us according to his riches. And he uses the illustration of Rockefeller. Now, many of you know the Rockefellers were very wealthy. And at one time, John Rockefeller was the wealthiest man in the world. And, and one day, he was coming out of this place, and he had his, uh, his, uh, his top hat on and his waistcoat on, and he just looked really sharp, and he came out. And he saw a, a poor young man there, and he reaches in and he pulls out a dime. Now, this would have been worth a lot more then than it is now. But still, he pulls out a dime, and he gives, a, gives that young man uh, that dime, that 10 cents. Now, we need to understand that Rockefeller gave him that dime out of his riches, but it was not according to his riches. Do you see the distinction between the two? And it's the same way with God. His gift lavishes with the blessings of salvation in accordance with his riches. God doesn't just give us some of his riches out of his riches. He gives us according to his riches. This infinite gift is worthy of God's infinite treasure of grace. And it commends us to be grateful and in all to him. And as you walk Brothers and sisters, this week, uh, don't leave this place thinking, oh, that was a, that sermon got me thinking, I need to do better this week. No, don't do that. Walk in the riches that you have in Jesus Christ. Look to your Savior. Trust in Him. Understand that He has given you more than you could ever imagine when it comes to facing the temptations of this world, when it comes to, to dealing with um, the relationships in which you have with others. Even those that you think that you can't love, you are able to love because Christ pours out his love into your hearts. Even those that maybe have wronged you in a way that, is so horrible that actually you don't want anybody else in this room to know how violated you were by this person. And yet Christ says, I have set you free that you might forgive that person. As a matter of fact, he says in Ephesians 4, later on in this letter, he says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. May our forgiveness be that great. As I think about uh, this whole thing of Christ redeeming us, I'm, I'm taken back to the story of Hosea. And I think about uh, what it must have been like for Hosea as he's standing there, a prophet of God. And there is his wife standing on the auction block. They're in the middle of the city. Uh, and oftentimes they would uh, take the slaves 
and forgive me kids, but they would take all their clothes off so that you could see exactly what it was that you were buying. And so here is Hosea standing here, seeing his wife who is in slavery now because she had given herself uh, to whoredom, that she was standing there uh, naked in the city square and men were bidding on her to buy her. And yet Hosea stands there and he bids and he bids and he bids until he purchases her. And this is what we read in Hosea 3. He said, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. If you were in Jesus Christ, that's your story. That's my story. I I like what James Boyce said. He said, we were created for intimate fellowship with God and for freedom. But we have disgraced ourselves by unfaithfulness. First, we have flirted with and then committed adultery with the sinful world and its values. The world even bid for our soul, offering sex, money, fame, power, and all the other items in which it traffics. But Jesus, our faithful bridegroom and lover, entered the marketplace to buy us back. He bid his own blood. There is no higher bid than that. And we became his. He reclothed us, not in the wretched rags of our own unrighteousness, but in his new robes of righteousness. He has said to us, you must dwell as mine. You shall not belong to another. So will I also be to you. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us think about the wonderful redeeming grace of our Lord and how he has purchased us. That redemption is not important just when we come to faith in Christ and we realize our sins but as we walk with him each and every day. If you are here today, though, and you realize, you know, I actually think I'm trying to earn my salvation. I actually am trying to appease God by the things I do or the things I don't do. I want you to understand you don't have to do that. Matter of fact, you can't do that. And Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You come to him, And he will forgive your sins. He has washed it perfectly with his blood. And he will make you a new creature in Christ. If you don't know him, I want to talk to you after the worship service. And that I might share with you further the good news of the gospel. Let's take just a moment, if we could. And let's just take a few minutes and meditate upon the word of God that was preached this morning. Father, we come to you today so thankful, Lord, for the words that we have heard spoken. Lord, I don't, I don't care where we're at in our lives or the things that are going off. There's, I'm sure there's been ways that each and every one of us has forgotten the way that we have been redeemed. And I pray, Lord, that you would stir in our hearts a trust and a faith in you 
and the work that you have done. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to the ways in which we are that we are living, maybe even subconsciously, contrary to the wonderful grace that you have given to us. Lord, help us to repent of those things and to turn to you and to trust wholly in you, no longer to be laboring and struggling for things that you give us freely in your wonderful redemption. Father, I pray that you would cause us to worship you. Lord, that that you would be the delight of our hearts. This week, as Satan comes to tempt us, as, Lord, conversations that we have with, with others are opportunities to forget that we are adopted sons of God. I pray that you would bring these words back to our minds, that we could trust in you and walk in the freedom, the freedom that we have in you. We thank you that you are such a loving and a gracious master. And Lord, pray that as bond servants, as those who have said, yes, I want to be your servant because you, you've adopted us, I pray that you would help us to walk um, in light of that relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.